0: Welcome to Queer Is Factor, a podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. Today we'll be talking about the British activist group Lesbians and Gays Support the Minors and the historical events that the 2014 movie Pride is based on. Before I start, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognize them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We had a request from one of our listeners, Max, who asked us to shout out his local queer bookshop. So before we start, this is just a shout out to Proud Geek, an online LGBT plus bookshop based in the UK, shipping to the UK, Europe, and excitingly for us, Australia, whose website allows you to filter by media, queer representation and genre, and who deliver all their orders in secure, discreet packaging to make sure those not out at home are safe. Oh, that's so nice of them. You can find out more on their About Us page on their website, which we will link in the episode description. We have a couple of content warnings for this episode. It does include descriptions of period typical homophobia, discussion of HIV and AIDS, and a little swearing in quotes. Just a little. Just a little. There are like a couple of quotes. It also contains mentions of sexual content. And Maggie Thatcher. Oh, yeah, and Margaret Thatcher is here. I hate her. If you want to turn it off right now, I will understand. <laughs> <laughs> We were originally intending for this episode to come out during Pride Month. That's definitely what I insinuated was going to happen in the Patreon newsletter that I put out. And if you want to get regular updates on what Queer as Fact is up to, you can become a patron and subscribe to our Patreon newsletter. Well, regular updates on what Queer as Fact would like to be up to <laughs> if lockdown
1: didn't happen to us. Regular but inaccurate updates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. The point
1: is, this is now a slightly late Pride Month episode. We do know that it's July 1st when you hear this.
0: It's still June for us. We're in time happy pride
1: and we'll have another episode coming out next week as some bonus content
0: we will so if you came here wanting to hear about the movie pride don't stress this is just like your prep work (laughs) jason will be talking about that next week (laughs) this is probably the point where i admit that i haven't seen the pride movie (laughs) i don't think that's a bad thing because you can give us just like this is the historical fact i'm not at all influenced by the movie and everything and then next week we can watch the movie and we can be like how did that compare to what you were expecting I do think that the major book that I used for my source was Tim Tate's book Pride, which is, like, made after the movie and kind of ties into the success of the movie. okay, yeah. So I do think my sources are influenced by the Pride movie. Okay. Although I have not seen it. That's Um, very interesting, because I definitely assumed that the movie was made after the book, but they must have done, like, a lot of their own research then to make the movie. Like, a lot of- original research it was mentioned at the end of Tim Tate's book one of the people involved in the creation of the film literally just like heard this story from a friend and was like that sounds so wild that would never happen Mm -hmm. I'm gonna find out more about it and so did a bunch of research and put this thing together oh yeah I guess it was recent enough that you could still just go around and ask people and be like hey what happened what did you do Yeah, and that's essentially what Tim Tate's book is. Tim himself is like, his voice is not in the book a lot. Mm -hmm. He limits himself to kind of like contextual material to provide you with information around people's quotes. So it's really like an oral history-based book? Yeah, 100%. The best kind of source? Yeah, it was a very easy source to read. Like, they were, you know, after-the-fact interviews, which... Mm does have an effect but like he tried to include quotes from various different people about the same events and that kind of thing so you could get a clearer idea of what actually happened nice work we love some good historiography here on queer as fact (laughs) (laughs) Uh, multiple viewpoints primary sources nice Like I just said, my major source for this was the book Pride by Tim Tate, published in 2017. I was honestly kind of suspicious of this book when I started, because Tim Tate is not a queer, he's not a minor, he's not a historian. Just some guy. He's a journalist. um, Is he a unionist? Trying to find a connection. He is, like, quite left-wing. I don't want to say that he's a unionist or that he's a socialist or anything like that. He's quite left-wing, and he makes that very clear in his introduction. He's like, look, I did not try and hide whose side I was on when I wrote this book. But I do want to read you what he said in his introduction that kind of reassured me. Mm -hmm. So he says, I was not, in many ways, the most obvious choice to write this book. As a middle-class straight Englishman, I cannot claim anything more than an emotional and political kinship with the men and women of this story. Unlike them, I have never been persecuted for my sexuality. I have not had my livelihood torn from me, nor my community destroyed by government diktat. My sole contributions to the struggle recounted in this book were once publicly challenging Margaret Thatcher to endorse gay rights at a 1978 Conservative Party conference. Not a success. <laughs> <laughs> Good on him, though. Like, that, you're right, that definitely inspires a lot of confidence in... Tim that this is not the first time he's engaged with like the queer community or like, the about gay rights? Yeah. Yeah. And he goes on to say, For that reason, the format of this book is unusual. We decided collectively that the story is owned by the men and women of LJSM and the Delice Valley, and therefore should be told by them, directly in their own words, with as little mediation from me as a writer as possible. Okay, I'm feeling pretty good about Tim. Yeah, so I don't feel too bad about Tim, even though he is a bit of a weird candidate for writing hmm. this book. Yep. Um, the LJSM website says that they consider he's done a fantastic job. He does have some, like and again, it's only in his intro because that's really the only place where mm. he kind of speaks at length. He did say a few weird little things that made me be like, Tim, I can tell that you're a straight man right now. <laughs> um, so he describes the film Pride as appealing to, in quotes, a diverse modern audience for whom homophobic discrimination has been vanquished by equal rights legislation and for whom coal mining is something to be studied in history classes. Uh-huh. Which, like, uh, Tim, <laughs> both of these things are still happening. <laughs> and coal gone from society <laughs> <laughs> this is future
1: liberals want <laughs> yeah, notoriously as australians there's no more coal <laughs> <laughs> so yeah admittedly there is a, i think there's like very little coal in the uk at this point
0: there is much less coal in the uk and also much of it is imported so there's very little coal mining happening yeah. in the yeah. uk anymore so it's much just funnier to australians where there's still a lot of coal mining happening in our country yeah. 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 <laughs> that quote seems insane. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to live in the world Tim's living in. How do I get there? <laughs> yeah. I'd also like to note that this is a very lesbian and gay focused episode. Mm-hmm. Like people occasionally throughout this book mention, you know, the existence of trans people and other gender nonconforming identities or the existence of bisexuality and mm-hmm. things like that. But the members of LGSM largely see themselves as like lesbian women and gay men. Okay. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to give the impression that these are the only identities available of the queer scene in London. So they knew these other identities exist and they knew people with these identities, but the group itself was mostly just lesbians Yeah, and, gay and I think like lesbians and gay men were like culturally dominant within the queer mm. scene, kind of, mostly gay men. Yeah. But yeah, I don't want you to think that that's all that was there. Conversely then, these lesbians and gay men, were some of them actually bi, because I feel like that's something we do see a fair bit, Like, in the second half of the 20th century, people who are bi using the words lesbian and gay. One of the women who was often quoted in this book did say something at one point about going to parties and snogging men and women. Okay. And that kind of thing. Most of the gay men seem to see themselves as gay men. Yeah. And a lot of the lesbians, to put it kind of stereotypically, they're very, like, anti-men. Oh, yeah. But that's not everyone. Yeah. Obviously, there's going to be diversity in every group. Yeah. So, to start off with, now I've got the source stuff out of the way. I'm going to give you a quick history of like coal mining in Britain in the second half of the 20th century. Okay, let's go. So, coal mining had been a huge part of the UK's economy throughout like the 19th and early 20th century. In its peak in 1920, somewhere around 3% of the UK's population was employed in coal mining, which was about 1.2 million people. Is that like 3% are minors or 3% are just like somewhere in the industry? That was unclear. I'd assume somewhere in the industry. Yeah, that's what I was assume. Um, but i was just wondering. In 1947, the coal industry was largely nationalised and put under the control of the National Coal Board. This was wild to me to hear, like the scale of nationalisation going on in Britain at this time. It was an insanely socialist thing to do. <laughs> I feel like we're very against nationalisation now, yeah. and it seems very radical. And it was much more normal. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like, imagine if our government now was like, you know what, we'll do the mining now, guys. Thanks, Gina. I'll take it from
1: here. Yeah, I mean, it's just because we've grown up in, like, a post... A post-Thatcher society. Well, I was going to say a (laughs) post-1980s society, because it wasn't just Thatcher. No, it wasn't. Ronald Reagan also exists. (laughs) He does. (laughs) I understand that this is true. And obviously, neither of those were the leaders of our country.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So... The National Coal Board took over. In the following few years, they implemented a bunch of good things, significant pay increases, a five-day week, a bunch of, like, safety training. Nice, nice. So, for this period, coal mining was considered, like, the best working class job you could have. Okay. It was a great time. It was well paid. (laughs) It (laughs) It wasn't a great great time. time. You were going down in a coal mine. It did suck. Yeah. (laughs) But at least you were well
1: paid. Yeah. Yeah, you were well compensated for the dangerous and hard work that you were doing.
0: Yeah, But throughout the 60s and early 70s, cheap coal imports, natural gas and cheap oil imports started taking over like locally mined coal as a source of energy. And so coal mines just became less necessary and less profitable in the UK. So coal mines were being gradually closed down throughout this period. Between 1957 and 64, one third of the coal mines that the NCB ran were closed. They tried to do this in cooperation with the National Union of Mine Workers. So Mm. they would kind of like go in there, talk to the workers, get people to agree to a closure on the basis that they'd offer like initiatives to help people get into alternative work, whether that was like in another nearby mine or in another industry. It didn't always work. One of the women from South Wales who's quoted a lot in this book, Christine Powell, describes how due to a succession of mine closures, her father was forced to work further and further from home until in the end he
1: was forced out of mining altogether. Um, yeah. But they did
0: kind of try.
1: I mean, yeah. I was about to say that, like, obviously when you close the first mine... That works, that yeah. That works pretty well. But By the time you're closing, like, the 90th mine... Yeah. You're starting to run out of places for people to go. The, yeah.
0: yeah. No, her dad ended up working for the Ford Motoring Company, and so they did try and, like, move people into other industries as well Mm -hmm. so like coal mining was going slowly downhill but it wasn't like a terrible situation until in the early 70s for reasons i don't fully understand i'm not going to pretend i know economics the uk was having a huge inflation problem so basically their currency is becoming increasingly worthless and in order to try and limit inflation the government put a cap on public service wage increases which included all of the nationalized industries Mm-hmm. The miners went on strike because their wages were no longer keeping pace with the cost of living. And what essentially happened then was kind of a protracted war between the coal mining industry and the government, in which the government would like, implement measures to limit coal consumption so that they could outlast a strike. Mm-hmm. The miners would strike for as long as they could. Mm-hmm. until yeah. I ran out of money and had to go back to work. This kind of went back and forth over the next few years for a while. A lot of weird things happened at this time. Like, one of the measures they put in was a three-day business week. Businesses were only allowed to use electricity on three days of the week. Was that, like, across the country? Was that just, like, public service, like, government businesses? No, that was or- businesses. That was commercial businesses. Oh, wow. That's yeah. wild. Just get the last two days off and just work in the dark. I don't know what they did, but all <laughs> the people talk about the three-day week. They're like, yeah, we had the three-day business week in early 1974. <laughs> (laughs) Wow. Which is just so wild. Like, imagine if our government now was like, okay, in order to break union power, you all have to go home. I'll be going home, but I will have as many appliances on as possible while I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was also something which happened. One of the boys who was in LGSM later, he was talking about how he was already a wild communist as a teen. He was like, I was in high school at this time when we had the three day week. Believe me, I was running around turning every light in the school at every
1: possible <laughs> moment. <laughs> which is just very endearing. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: It's also kind of funny to see how, you know, different circumstances can make people do very different things. Like, your progressive leftist people like, turn on all the lights, use all the electricity. <laughs> <Yeah>. Run your <laughs> heater on high cold. all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, was, it was very, yeah. Different situation. Yeah. yeah. So we go on to the late 1970s. The um, conservative government was voted out. Who did these wage caps? A Labor mm-hmm. government was voted in. They continued with the wage caps. They capped wage increases for the public service at five percent, and strongly recommended that the private sector do the same. Is that five percent a year? That's a pretty good wage increase. I think inflation <laughs> was just a bad situation.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was about to say like that is a pretty good wage increase in the context of like our modern economy now. cost of living increases. Yeah. But not when you're experiencing hyperinflation.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think that just illustrates um, the problem they were having. Yeah. The private sector didn't follow these recommendations. In late 1978, a strike at a Ford manufacturer was resolved with a 17% pay rise. So what followed this is what historians often call the
1: winter of discontent in the UK, because <laughs> historians are pretentious. Historians are extremely pretentious. Look, historians are usually really bad at naming things, so I'm pleased to hear a more like interesting name for something.
0: True. Someone's like, "Yeah, that was the winter of discontent." Even if you're not interested in yeah. history, I still still like, "Oh, what? What, what happened? happened?" Yeah. Yeah. So it's the winter at the end of 1978 and the start of 1979. It was the coldest winter in like 16 years, and basically the entire public service went on strike. So the coal miners went on strike. But not only that, like ambulance drivers were on strike. Garbage collectors were on strike. Like all the, you know, the basic running of society was on strike. Literally gravediggers were on strike. They were just like, we just like stacked up the coffins. At least it was really cold. Yeah. Unemployment rates were extremely high. Everyone who was employed was on strike. So... When the nation went back to the polls in 1979, the Conservatives' campaign slogan was Labour isn't working, a reference to both the unemployment and the constant strikes situation. And everyone was like, you know what? Fair. And they voted Thatcher in.
1: (sighs) I Um, see how it happened. A definitely unfortunate result. That is a catchy slogan. That's better (laughs) than anything (laughs) our Conservatives in Australia have come up with in my lifetime. Yeah. yeah, it was definitely
0: yeah. a lot of the reason I gave you this background was because I've gone through my whole life being like, but that show is clearly evil incarnate. I have been told so. How did she end up in for so long? I guess I never questioned it that much because there are so many not just bad politicians, but politicians who do seem really evil. And I was just like, Yeah, people vote for these people. That's what happens. But that does yeah.
1: like put a more like useful and nuanced explanation yeah, and of and, why. And especially in a Westminster parliamentary system. Yeah. You know, like it is not a presidential election people weren't voting for for thatcher Thatcher. no at least not in the same way that people in america or other presidential systems do that's fair they're voting for the conservatives headed by thatcher Yeah. yeah yeah
0: for the politically active left margaret thatcher was already well known as margaret thatcher milk snatcher <laughs> <laughs> which is the funniest thing I've ever heard for her like extensive cuts to state funded education, which had included cutting a free milk in schools program. Were people better at political slogans in the seventies? Signs point to yes. Yeah. <laughs> so she was widely reviled by the left. I'm not going to pretend to be objective here. She's also racist. She's also homophobic. I will read you some bad things she has said so you understand why I like this. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Thatcher on immigrants the british character has done so much for democracy for law and done so much throughout the world that if there is any fear that it might be swamped people are going to react and be rather
1: hostile to those coming in okay maggie ah yes so much around the world i like that she she doesn't even like say that it's good she just says they've done a lot some of it good most of it bad you know (laughs) also
0: margaret thatcher on being gay Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. If you're gay and you're listening, you do have an inalienable right to be gay. Don't let Maggie tell you. I want to be clear about this. Also, her policies were just generally characterized by like extensive social welfare cuts at a time when unemployment was at a historic high. Mm -hmm. So she sucks. I hate her. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not pretend we're unbiased. (laughs) Look, I started giving, like, reasonable information about her when I was writing this script, and I was like, I just need to be clear that I'm not being vitriolic for no reason here. Yeah, yeah, I understand, yeah. yeah. Gethin Roberts, who was born to a Welsh mining family and would later become a member of LJSM, said, I remember feeling absolute horror and gloom the day after the 1979 election. It was really distressing. I uh, can't relate to that at all. We've been there. Yeah. We will all be there again. <laughs> Thanks for that optimism. <laughs> so that's the like, political and economic situation
1: mm-hmm. leading up to the 1984 mining strike. I think it's uncontroversial to say that that sucks. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The UK economy was just a disaster. They had to go to the IMF to borrow money to try and like get themselves out. So... Now, a slight step sideways, I'm going to give you some context about, like, queer society in the same period.
1: Cool. Oh, this sounds much more pleasant. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In
0: 1967, the Sexual Offences Act 1967 was passed. This act legalised homosexual activity between men in England. Scotland, Northern Ireland, and the Armed Forces were excluded. Oh. So, was it still illegal in those places? Yes. Oh. Okay. It was legalized only under certain circumstances. One, both men had to be over the age of 21, which was five years older than the age of consent for sex between a man and a woman.
1: Mm-hmm. We've um, done
0: that in Australia as well. yeah. Yep. Two, it was consensual. Perfectly reasonable. Okay. I agree. Good. We like that part um. of the law. And three, it was in private. In private was perhaps the most ridiculous of these because in private required that one, it was a private residence and two, the only people in the residence were the two people having sex. So you could not come over to your house with your boyfriend and have sex if your housemate was in the other room. That was illegal. You couldn't have a threesome because it only accounted for two people having sex and considered the third one to be an extra party, not making this a private residence anymore. This was still a thing into the 90s. Some group in Yorkshire who had an orgy got arrested on this. Oh, okay. That's no good. And in addition to this, it continued to be illegal to solicit gay sex... And there were a bunch of sort of generic gross indecency Mm laws that covered things like men dancing together in the club. Um, So if you managed to get alone in a house with another man, you could have sex with him, but, like, you couldn't... It's illegal to ask for his number if you intend to have sex. Yeah, you can't pick up a guy, you can't be in your house with someone else and then be like, we're going to go into the next room and have sex now, like... Yeah. All the steps along the way are blocked, even if the final act is allowed. Yeah, they're like, look, we've built you a gay sex palace. It's on this island. We haven't invented (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs)
1: boats. Oh, I for one would like to go to the gay sex palace.
0: (laughs) The change in law was also not particularly reflective of greater acceptance in the government. It was more reflective of an understanding that homosexuality was inborn rather than being some kind of immoral decision that you make so they sort of understood that it was this gross perversion but it wasn't your fault it was just a tragedy that you were like this Leo Absey brought the bill to Parliament. This is just an excerpt from the speech. I ask that those of us who are blessed with the emotional security of a heterosexual wife, those who are blessed with a good wife and a good family, those who have the blessings of children, have we the right to demand this code of behaviour, by which he means not having gay sex, from those whose terrible fate it is to be homosexual. It's also like, I mean, I'm not that shocked given that this is the 60s, but the women just don't exist in this conversation, either from him talking about, you know, those of us who are blessed with a wife or from like this legislation affecting No, like, there was never any not. legislation about women having gay sex at all. We actually have an episode about why there's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we do actually. Yeah, because yeah. they didn't want women to know that that was a possibility. Both for my own benefit and for that of the audience. <laughs> what episode is that, Alice? I believe it's titled, Did Queen Victoria Believe in Lesbians? Ah. And you can listen to
1: find out the answer. It's a very short one. Yeah, back in the mini-episode days. Yeah.
0: So, the social attitude that led to that questionable legalisation of sex between gay men hadn't changed significantly throughout the 70s. Martin Goodsell, another member of LGSM, describes the pretty police... I don't know if you've heard this term are they the police who are trying to like get you for soliciting but by- yeah they're the undercover police who like hang out on gay beats pretending that they want gay sex until you mentioned that you're going to have gay sex with them at which point they arrest you yeah I haven't heard the term but I've heard of the practice homophobic violence was common Gethin Roberts who I mentioned earlier I don't know if you remember him he's a Welsh gay man who was a member of LJSM remembers being punched in the face at a student union event for wearing a gay badge he also remembers he lived in a gay housing co-op and all their houses had screens to prevent firebombing oh wow okay because that was a risk they had received threats and although as you mentioned the legislation only mentioned men at all the social attitudes were similar for women Stephanie chambers who was in lgsm as well says even walking down the street hand in hand with a girlfriend is something i wouldn't do i knew i would be beaten up if i did so- yeah it's
1: something like i feel we talk about a lot where like legislation and kind of you know written attitudes tend to ignore the existence of women a lot but that doesn't mean that women are but- ignored on the street
0: yeah And in some ways, like, the fact that governing bodies just don't know you exist. Mm. Like, that's another kind of problem. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it has its good points, but it also has its bad points. Yeah. So the homophobia in society wasn't divided along political lines at this time. There wasn't sort of a conservative homophobic right wing and a radically accepting left, Mm -hmm. the way that we conceive of this now. The union movement particularly was notoriously homophobic. And like left wing activist groups tended to be as well. They tended to perceive of homosexuality as some kind of like bourgeois indulgence that the cool (laughs) Leninists wouldn't do. Oh Oh,
1: yes, a classic argument.
0: (laughs) Yes, you know. Martin Goodsell says back then, coming out as gay meant crossing class boundaries. Sorry, who's Martin Goodsell? Oh I mentioned him before, I think. Maybe I didn't. Sorry. Martin Goodsell. I I God, yeah, He was another member of LGSM. Okay, yeah, no worries. Um, and he says, back then, coming out as gay meant crossing class boundaries. Hmm. Outside of political activist organizations, though, towards the late 70s, a shift in like social attitudes was coming. A gay social scene was beginning to develop. In 1979, the UK's first major commercial gay nightclub was opened. I want to be clear that, like, gay bars and clubs hmm. kind of existed before this. They tended to be like smaller, cooperatively owned, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, more sort of community than commercial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it was like there were queer people who needed somewhere to have a drink and dance, but they weren't seen as a demographic you could mock. Exactly. Yeah. And then this gay nightclub called Heaven came along. Was it run by gay people? Do you know? It was run by gay people. It was run by quite conservative gay people. You will mm-hmm. hear slightly about them later when these guys start Collecting, like, donations for hmm. the minors. Martin Goodsell,
1: who you might remember by now as. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, the third time he's been mentioned.
0: <laughs> yeah. Also remembers going to his boyfriend's working class town, just, like, to visit, and seeing that in working class communities, drag acts were quite acceptable. Oh, yeah. Like, entertainment, which he said was possibly a safety valve for homosexuality within the community. I mean, So yeah. he kind of understood it as, like, a certain space in the community where it was acceptable to do this kind of thing, even though just
1: living your life gay wasn't really at this stage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty classic yeah. reason for drag to exist, right?
0: Yeah. And also, obviously, if there is a tradition of like people assigned male at birth dressing as women which, like, there is in, like, music halls in Britain, for example. Yeah. Like, obviously queer people are going to be drawn towards that space. Yeah. Even if it wasn't originally existing for that purpose. Yeah. So, the couple of years before the strike that we're about to get up to also coincided with the arrival of the AIDS crisis, which, in a lot of ways, set back the kind of gradually growing social acceptance that had come about in the last couple of years. One gay man who was only identified as Barry in the interview I watched said, when AIDS came along that knocked everything back 20 years. Mm-hmm. As we discussed, the economy in the late 70s and early 80s in the UK was kind of a mess. They were hugely in debt and Thatcher and her government embarked on like essentially a large scale cost cutting project to try and get the government out of debt. This involved turning on a bunch of nationalized industries, which were heavily subsidized by the government as a way to make them competitive compared to imports. In order to do this, she had to weaken union power. In 1982, an Employment Act was passed, which allowed employers to sack employees who went on strike. That's pretty evil. It also allowed for courts to sequester union funds in the instance of an unlawful strike. And what's a lawful strike? So basically the union has to have a vote. Everyone has to agree to strike. So like the majority That's, of the union members have to yeah. be on board.
1: Is it is it a simple majority or is it like a super majority? It depends
0: on the union. Okay. They had their own rules about this. You know, one coal mine could vote to strike and mm. that would be fine. But you couldn't have a national strike without having a national. Okay. Vote yeah. about I mean,
1: that yeah. part of it doesn't sound It all makes
0: sense, but it is going to become a problem later. Yeah. Okay. With those new laws in place, and following the 1983 election in which Thatcher's government was re-elected on the back of the Falklands War- Oh, yeah. I didn't go into a lot of detail about the Falklands War here because it wasn't super relevant, but the important thing here is basically that the UK and Argentina went to war over some tiny islands near Argentina, and the Thatcher government kind of used it to create this sort of jingoistic, nationalistic Hmm. rhetoric that- you know how wartime governments are. <laughs> <laughs> it made, yeah. her, made her much more popular than the failing economy should really have allowed for. Yeah. So it's a bit of a distraction smokescreen. Yeah. What we're doing yeah, A bit here. of a smokescreen war. Like, Argentina invaded the Falklands, and I'm sure she was there in her office like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I would love to hear more of your Thatcher impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe we can release that as an extra Patreon content. <laughs>
0: I don't know that our patrons want that.
1: I know, it's (laughs) why making a cutting motion.
0: (laughs) Uh, Anyway. So, Thatcher put a man called Ian McGregor in charge of the National Coal Board in March 1983. Mm -hmm. He was already known from his previous stint at British Steel, which was the nationalised British steel industry. At British Steel, he had overseen a similar project of like closures of steelworks and extensive job cuts, which meant that as soon as she put Ian McGregor in charge of the National Coal Board, it was very clear to everyone what her intentions were. Arthur Scargill, who was then the leader of the National Union of Mine Workers, said, "...the policies of this government are clear, to destroy the coal industry and the NUM." By November of the same year... So in 1983, I'm assuming you've forgotten. Yeah, I had. <laughs> 21 pits had been closed with job losses of
1: 21,000. That's a lot of people. Do we have like context as to how many mines were still open at that stage? At that
0: stage, I don't have a number of mines, but mm. at that stage, the number of like mine workers still around was somewhere around 200,000. Okay. Oh, okay. So
1: so around 10% of yeah. workers had been laid off by Christmas. Yeah, you can see how that would be a problem.
0: Oh, yeah. And especially it was a problem not yet in the South Wales area that we're going to be talking about, but there were a lot of communities whose essentially entire economy was coal mining. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like every man there worked in coal mining. And so that was
1: obviously a problem there. You would close a mine and the entire town would just be wiped out. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I assume they're not doing the same kind of consultative, gradual process that had been... Being undertaken previously.
0: No, they turn up and they're like, we're closing it. Goodbye. Don't come back on Monday. Yeah. So did women work in coal mining, like in the mines or just men? Not generally. Mm. It seems to mostly be men. A lot of women are quoted in this from the mining communities, mm-hmm. and they tend to be either there at home with the family or they're working in other work, like they're working in garment factories, they're working in... Okay, so they doing other industrial They work. were doing other work. Often they would go to work when the strikes happened, so uh- that their family still had income. So they would like get a job because their husband or whatever wasn't working. Yeah, but because... 'Cause strikes had been happening like on and off for the last decade, they were like in and out of other work, depending on the like needs of their family. Mm-hmm. So Arthur Scargill and the NUM started preparing for a strike by implementing an overtime ban mm-hmm. on all the unionized mine workers to limit production, because that means that like national coal reserves will be worn down. So that when they strike, the government won't be able to last as long before they have to negotiate with them, essentially. Oh, so like doing prep work for the strike. Yeah, they do prep work. And both sides do prep work all the time. So the union will be like, all right, no one's working overtime just in case we need to strike. And on the government side, they're like, all right, we're limiting like electricity usage, Mm -hmm. like you saw that three-day week thing. They would do things like that in advance because they knew a strike was coming, and so they would do things to, like, stockpile coal on their end, and meanwhile the union on the other end would be trying to, like, minimize production so that when the strike came, like, one side would be able to hold out longer.
1: Kind of a union cold war.
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. the whole thing is really, like, a cold war between the union and the government. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Margaret Thatcher in all her rhetoric kind of talks about it that way. She makes this particularly kind of incendiary speech where she talks about Argentina and the Falklands War as being like the enemy without, while the miners are the enemy within. Oh yeah, I've heard about that before. Yeah. A lot of the people in LJSM were like, the enemy within? Damn, that's sexy. I'm excited to be the enemy within. (laughs) <laughs> which is very funny and relatable honestly <laughs> i love it when the government hates me i don't but you have to get like some kicks out of it right <laughs> yeah anyway so the num started preparing for a strike and on march 6th of 1984 the national coal board announced the closure of Cortonwood, which was a major coal mine in yorkshire it had recently had a bunch of its like equipment infrastructure refurbished and everyone had anticipated it being worked for another, like, at least five or six years. And the National Coal Board announced this closure. They followed this up by informing the union that it would be the first of 20 pit closures, costing a total of around 20,000 jobs. Another 20,000 jobs on top. Yeah, this is extra 20,000 jobs. Okay. So when you say a pit closure versus a mine closure, is a mine made up of multiple pits, or are they just interchangeable words? They seem to use the words mine and pit and colliery. Okay. Largely interchangeably. I've omitted colliery because nobody uses that word outside of <laughs> oh. the actual mining industry, I guess. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. But yeah, they seem to use pit and mine interchangeably. Okay. So it was March, which was the beginning of spring, which is strategically a terrible time for a coal mine on the union side. Mm-hmm. Because energy demands are low, heating demands are low. Oh yeah. They can last much longer with a limited reserve of coal. And that would have been a conscious decision made by the Conservative yeah. government. Yeah, and that's why the Conservative government has consciously decided, not only are we going to close these mines, we're going to do it, like, outrageously, suddenly, right now, on a large scale. At a time that doesn't suit the union. Yeah, to, like, yeah. force their hand into a strike that's not going to work for them. Mm. Yeah. Scargill went ahead and called for a national strike to support the workers affected by the proposed closures, he made the controversial decision not to hold a national vote on the strike. He was like, every like, local union branch can decide on their own what they're going to do about this, and kind of counted on a domino effect to eventually result in the whole nation okay. going for it. Mm-hmm. What this instead resulted in was some mines closed, some mines didn't close. Strikers from the closed mines would go up to the unclosed mines and form picket lines. Mm-hmm. The police would go up there to stand on the side of the still working miners. So why did he make the decision, do you because know? Because he didn't think that he would get a yes vote through. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, in some areas, there were mines still being worked. People had been on strike a lot in the last mm-hmm. few years. And so he thought there were probably a lot of areas where people would just not want to strike. They would be like, this doesn't affect us. I can't afford to do it. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And so he didn't hold this vote because he figured that going ahead without a national vote would be better than going ahead with a national vote that had been no. Yeah. Like a no vote just kind of rules out his opportunity to have a strike altogether. Yeah. Because that means all the striking is illegal and then they can take the union's money away. Yeah. This did mean it was very sudden compared to previous strikes because a lot of that, like, people were anticipating they had prepared the leaflets for the national union vote they were going to have. And that's not what happened, according to Huwle Francis, who was a Welsh miner. At the beginning of March, I was with the entire leadership of the South Wales NUM. There was no talk of a strike. And by by the 12th, Arthur Scargill has called a strike. Like, technically he hasn't called a national strike, but he's done that thing where he's like, these guys can go and strike. I strongly recommend everyone strikes in support of them. Yeah, but he can't officially call a national strike without a yes vote for a national strike, again. Yes, either. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't necessarily a
1: popular move among miners mm-hmm. to go ahead without the vote. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he didn't really have a popular move to play.
0: Yeah, Paul Canning, one of the members of LJSM, says about the decision: Scargill should have held a ballot. If he had held a ballot, the whole basis of the strike would have been much stronger than it was. But mm-hmm. I think, again, he's sort of trusting that the union would have voted yes, and Scargill did not think that was guaranteed. Mm. Yeah. But he also said, as I understand it, it was about internal NUM politics, which is just stupid. And also, Scargill has been a member of the Stalin Society, and I really, really hate Stalinists. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all know what left-wing politics is like. The
1: fact that left-wing politics is like this is like an ongoing problem in this situation. I mean, it's the fact that politics is like this no matter what side of politics yeah. you're on is a constant problem
0: <laughs> <laughs> i guess i have n- never had an insight into the workings of like small
1: right-wing groups yeah. but i'm sure, they're I'm sure they're exactly, <laughs> exactly like this i yeah. mean like see the last decade of australian politics
0: true small right-wing <laughs> groups like the liberal party <laughs> in particular the strike was divisive in south wales for a bunch of reasons one was that the Miners in South Wales had suffered a number of pit closures in the past and been on strike and asked for solidarity from the, like, National Union and got no support. Mm -hmm. And so they very much, a lot of them had this perception that was like, well, why should we fight for the English mine closures? They don't come here and fight for us. Fair enough. There was also no strike pay in Wales. The South Wales branch of the NUM didn't have the funds compared Mm -hmm. to England to – like financially support striking miners and the Thatcher's government's welfare cuts had meant that previously you had got welfare from the government mm-hmm. if
1: mm-hmm. you
0: were on strike, mm-hmm. but the Thatcher policy sort of assumed that you were getting support from the union. And so you didn't get any government support if you were on strike. So going on strike in South Wales was just a huge financial risk, basically. Mm-hmm. But having said that, it was also a very politically radical area and it was a very like militantly unionist area so in spite of those misgivings they eventually agreed that they were going to strike okay there were a number of reasons i saw for why south wales was so radical and one that came up a lot was like their particular brand of like methodist christianity was extremely strong on egalitarianism Oh, okay. That's interesting. See, I don't know anything about Methodists, so I can't sort of speak to this or not. But their, like, religious and community background was something that came ah, up Ah, Because yeah. I would have guessed it was something to do with them being, like, Welsh and, like, opposition to the English in Wales that would have affected them being, like, generally more anti-government, perhaps. That would have been my guess. It seems like they were almost too isolated to be opposed to the English. Di Donovan, who you'll hear about a bit later, mm. he's one of the men who organizes the like, support group in South Wales. And one of the things he said in the interview was, he was like, people are surprised that we managed to connect to lesbians and gays in this isolated traditionalist mm. mining community. What's honestly shocking to me is that we managed to connect with the people the next valley over. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so they were, I think they were just like quite isolated. Mm-hmm. So regardless of where in the country, funding the strike was extremely difficult. Funding directly through the NUM was quite risky. They were afraid of that law that had come out about sequestering funds from unions that did unlawful strikes. So, when you say funding directly through the NUM, you mean the NUM was afraid to handle the money necessary to support the workers because there was a risk it would be taken away. Yeah. And so, what they recommended was that individual support groups kind of linked up with fundraising groups so the money would skip the NUM and go straight to the support group. Okay, that makes sense. Because legally it was kind of much clearer cut to be like, no, we have nothing to do with the NUM. This is just a charity for poor mining families who aren't getting any income right now. A smart move. But Arthur Scargill and the NUM leadership divided up potential fundraising areas geographically amongst the striking coalfields. So they were like, coalfields in Kent, you can fundraise in London. Coalfields in Yorkshire, you can fundraise in the whole of North America. South Wales was told they could fundraise in Ireland. Why would you not say, first off, you can all fundraise in your local area? I mean, you could fundraise in your local area, yes. But there was little money in the local areas because they were all mining areas and they were all on strike. But at least like South Wales say, you can fundraise in Cardiff? Like... Yeah, no, they're allowed to fundraise in the South of Wales. But they were given, like, allocated areas outside of the minefields. Okay, so it's like a coal mining area is, like, partnered with a non-coal mining area. Um, Yeah, the trouble was South Wales was given Ireland. For some context about Ireland, I'm not (laughs) going to talk about the troubles, but in Ireland, unemployment (laughs) was around 17%. Nobody had any money. Between June 1981 and the end of 1982, Ireland had been through three federal elections. We love that in like less than 18 months. It was a bad time in Ireland Mm -hmm. and in South Wales. They were like... Thanks, Arthur. So did Arthur, like, have beef with South Wales, and did he just, like, not think very hard and just, like, draw some lines on a map? The way that Paul Francis, who I mentioned before, the way that he understood it, he was like, in his wisdom, Arthur Scargill divided the world up, and we in South Wales were given Ireland as the place to raise funds. Yorkshire and Kent, the favourite coalfields, that's in quotation marks, were given North America and London. And so he understands it as, like, it's kind of an English organisation. And it focused. Focuses on England and South Wales is just kind of an also-round. They're like, oh, there are coal fields there, Ireland, they're Celtic, that'll do. So it's sort of about like probably the political power that people from that area have within the union and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and because yeah. they're quite small communities and they're quite isolated. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned before, just like the NUM branch in Wales has always been much poorer than in England, just because the members have generally been poorer, so there's less money to go in. Mm-hmm. So because they can't really effectively fundraise in Ireland, Aside from anything else, it's difficult to get to (laughs) compared to London. Maybe not compared to North America, though. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe not. But North America is very big. Maybe it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So instead, they start an sort of internal community fund, which is the Neath, Delice and Swansea Valleys Miners Support Group. As you can imagine, an internal community fund is not really that effective because everyone in the community is on strike and they're like, well, I've got no money. Let's share our no
1: money. Zero and percentage of zero is uh, zero.
0: Yeah, so Howell and his pal Di Donovan had been to marches in London, and they'd got a sense of how generous people were with, like, Mm -hmm. donation money in London, and they were like, ''All right, we can't see our community starve. Di, how about you go to London?'' Undercover. <laughs> sneaky sneaky. Sneaky sneaky. So they don't tell any of the union leadership, and they're like, if anyone catches you and is like, what are you doing up here, die? Tell them you're doing this on your own initiative. It's just a personal thing, nothing to do with the union or the community. You were just like, I have some time off because I'm on strike and I'm gonna raise some money on my own. So obviously when he goes up to London, he's unable to connect with any like major unions or anything like that, because it would blow his cover. <laughs> <laughs> We've like only a spy story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Meanwhile in London, a gay communist activist, Mark Ashton, who was then in his 20s, had the idea to collect some money to support striking miners at the Pride March, which was in June, as Pride marches are. <laughs> Unless you're in <laughs> Melbourne. Unless you're in Melbourne, in which case they're in like February or something. So Mark Ashton was like, let's raise some money at the Pride Parade. He ran into a close friend, Mike Johnson who says, one day I bumped into him at King's Cross Station. He just came out and asked if I fancied getting hold of some buckets and collecting money for miners at the Pride March the following Saturday. I thought it was a good idea. Seems good. So that's what they did. They were very surprised by the like level of support and generosity that they received doing their collections, but also the level of hatred for Thatcher that they had encountered. The like queer community and the leftist community, didn't 100% overlap. They were definitely conservative gays, and so mm. it wasn't a guarantee that they were going to do well here. It turned out there were an awful lot of people there who hated Thatcher as much as we did, said Mike Johnson. <laughs> Incredible, Mike. Incredible. Incredible. So they put an ad in Capital Gay, a local like London gay newsletter.
1: <laughs> Beautiful.
0: Announcing that they were going to hold a meeting at Mark's house on July 15th of a new group they were setting up called Lesbians and Gays Support the Minors. Nice, nice, nice. Casually dropping in the movie title. I know it's not the movie title, but it's the episode title. (laughs) title, That is correct.
1: That is correct.
0: Basically, their activities for the next few months are like collecting on the streets. They don't get to making a constitution until September. But I'm going to read you some of the things that were in their constitution anyway just to give you an idea, even though it's like slightly later in the piece. So, this is their aim statement as written in the constitution. The aim of the group is to organize amongst lesbians and gay men in support of the National Union of Mine Workers in its campaign against pit closures and in defense of the mining communities, and to provide financial assistance for miners and their families during the strike. Also, there was a resolution in it designed to limit like the kind of leftist in fighting we were discussing before. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It says lesbians and gays support. The miners is a single issue solidarity group and owes no allegiance to any political party. The Mm -hmm. only requirements of members are that they are either lesbian or gay and that they support the NUM in their struggle against pit closures, job losses, and privatisation. I want you all to know that Mark Ashton turned up to the September 2nd meeting with the constitution as they had planned it out and these resolutions written on a scroll, (laughs) which he unrolled and read out. Fantastic. (laughs) Is that in the movie? I don't know. I haven't seen them. Oh, you have you? Yeah, that's literally what he does, and everyone's like, "Yeah, that was Mark for you. Incredibly serious, but so camp." <laughs> <laughs>
1: We will discuss the scroll, or lack thereof, in the movie next week. (laughs) Yep. I've seen the movie, but I can't remember that. And I feel like I would have remembered it. Mm. We'll see. Maybe they took it out because it was too unrealistic. (laughs) Maybe they did. You know, I feel like American audiences would be like, oh, come on. Like, just because it's the UK doesn't mean they wrote everything on a scroll.
0: (laughs) That's true. (laughs) They did. Mark Ashton did. did. (laughs) So, they opened a bank account. Martin Goodsell commented that he thought this would be a lot harder for a like, gay activist group to do now. Mm, mm, That's true. Yeah, he was like, a lot of groups that he's involved with now, he was like, their accounts have been shut down by banks because they're not doing something right, that kind of thing. Wait, when you say that he's involved with now, do you mean at the time of the book being written? I mean, yeah, yeah. like when he was interviewed for this, he was like a lot of these kind of solidarity groups and activist groups are having difficulty okay. working with banks. And he was like, we just went into the bank and we're like, we're some gays and we want to support the miners. Where do we sign? I guess it really just does depend who's behind the counter on the day.
1: Yeah. Mm, it also depends on like bank policies. Like this is a huge thing with like MasterCard and like,
0: Oh like, yeah. You know,
1: those kind of big finance companies, they get lobbied really hard by conservative Christian groups across the mm. world. And that infringes on people's ability to have like financial transactions between yeah. activist groups across the world.
0: I wonder how much that was happening like in the UK at the time. Like, yeah, I don't know. Is
1: this like a newer development? Yeah, well, I mean, like the, that kind of like more globalized financial yeah. system is yeah, kind of a like, post-80s phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like at the time when they
0: talk about it, they're like, they're dealing in cash and checks. Like one mm. of them is like, the thing I remember most clearly from this time is the smell of copper coins. We used to count every coin in the back room. You oh, couldn't get yeah. it off your hands. That's so true about counting coins. Mm. I have to count the money at work sometimes, and then I'm like, ouch, damn spot. <laughs> 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, one of the major struggles that LGSM had, especially in its early days, was internal Grubian fighting.
1: <laughs>
0: what a shot. as you
1: can imagine, Mark tried so hard. He had a scroll and
0: everything. Yeah. Mark did his best with the scroll, but as Dave Lewis says, he was just another. LGSM member. It was Heinz 57 varieties, politically. <laughs> Heinz 57 varieties was like an ad for how many varieties of pickle Heinz had to oh, okay. be <laughs> I was wondering, Like, I feel like Heinz is most strongly associated with baked beans. I was like, are there 57 kinds of baked beans in Britain? Like, That kind of tracks with what I understand about British diet. Anyway, it was Heinz 57 varieties, politically. The majority of people, though not all, had some kind of political philosophy. Some were trots, some were communists, some were Euro-communists, some were Marxist-Leninists, and of the Trot variety, there were all sorts. Militants, Socialist Organizer, Socialist Workers' Party, Workers' Power. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. I'm, I'm not really over 57 varieties, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> were they all pickles?
0: unclear. No <laughs> I will Google way. it for you right now.
1: <laughs> I think this is crucial knowledge. Heinz's
0: 57 varieties. <laughs> I'm just imagining somebody having the lamest party trick where they're like, yeah, I can name all 57 <laughs> varieties. Yeah, people true. are like, Dave. Henry J. Hines introduced the marketing slogan 57 pickle varieties in 1896.
1: Does <laughs> it have a list of all 57? I don't think article? there
0: were. The reason for 57 is unclear. Hines said he chose five because it was his lucky number and seven because it was his wife's lucky number. Oh, okay. So it's just a random number. It doesn't actually refer to how many varieties of pickles there were. Yeah. So in order to resolve this conflict, they focused very strongly on, like, tangible, direct actions that they were going to do. They were kind Mm -hmm. of like, look, we don't care about the political ideology. What we do is we go outside gay pubs with a bucket, we collect money, and we will send it to some miners. Solid.
1: Can't argue Um, with that. Well, you can, but... You
0: You can. can They very much did. Yeah. um, But this approach appealed to a range of members who were largely burnt out by endless socialist v-socialist bickering. According to Mike, the clear intentions and their, like, direct action focus worked. LGSM was transformed. We became so fucking efficient after that, we realised we had a fighting force, an incredible, coherent, comradely fighting force. This view is not universally shared, especially among the lesbian members, who were far fewer than the gay men in the organisation and often felt that their voices weren't being heard. Pretty standard lesbian experience in, like, lesbian and gay activism at this time, I would say. Um, Nicola Field remembers LJSM meetings as men tearing into each other remorselessly on points of political theory. We've all been in that meeting. (laughs) We certainly have. And Wendy Calden similarly remembers it like this. LJSM meetings were quite large and could be quite intimidating. There were so many people with big opinions that there was a lot of shouting hmm The divide between lesbians and gay men would eventually result in the formation of a splinter group called Lesbians Against Pit Closures, but for the minute, they managed to overcome these fault lines and get to work raising money. At this stage, most of LGSM's work was carrying donation tins for the miners, which they did outside various pubs and clubs and outside the gays, the word bookshop. Mm-hmm. Um, amongst the gay community, responses were mixed. The perceived divide between queer and working class people was strong. Oh. So what were the working class gays like doing at the time? There is a little bit of discussion about gay people in the South Wales valleys. So they tended to be like single gay people. So there wasn't really a a sense of community at that time. There was one gay man living in South Wales. He was in his 50s. Mm -hmm. And they were like, he'd always been kind of isolated and reserved from community. And when these gays came down from London, Di Donovan was like, he was in his element. Every time I saw him on the street, he'd be like, they're coming this weekend, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I guess if he was in a small town, he may have just, like, never had a chance to yeah. socialise with another queer person before. Yeah. So there was this sort of perceived class divide between middle-class gays and good working-class hat men, you know? <laughs> yeah. Ray Goodspeed, who was in LGSM, before that he was in this socialist organisation called Militant, mm-hmm. and he was like, in all their meetings, they were very kind of anti-gay. They saw it as, like, a bourgeois indulgence, and they were like, don't talk about the gays. The working-class can't connect with that kind of thing. Yeah. And he was like, then I went and did this, like activist summer school like militant summer school with a bunch of working class kids in a working class community and he was like turned out that they were actually fine with this so it was just this perception that was had rather than a real situation where working class people were more homophobic yeah it was kind of there was a perception that there was a working class versus gay divide and it was certainly true that like in the welsh valleys they hadn't had a lot of exposure to the kind of gay communities that mm-hmm. were happening in London, but it certainly is not the case, as people perceived, that there were tolerant, accepting
1: middle class and the homophobic working class. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is a constant argument and struggle in terms of the gay rights and queer rights movement more generally, right? It's like, yeah. oh, but working class people like couldn't possibly understand and they're just going to be bigoted.
0: Yeah, and it's yeah, like, yeah.
1: You know, your capacity to be bigoted is in no way dependent on your level of education. No, or your income.
0: Yeah, and later on, a lot of these people do comment on how they went to South Wales and realised that they had been being kind of weird and bigoted about the working class themselves. Oh, yeah. They were like, oh, these people were so much more intelligent and Mm outward-looking and accepting than I ever anticipated. Yeah. Yeah, so this perceived divide was strong. On the 3rd of August, 1984... A letter was published in Capital Gay entitled, Would the Miners Support Us? It read, They, lesbians and gay support the miners, should ask themselves how much support they would receive from the miners if the situation was reversed. Have any of them lived in a mining town or community? Had the letter writer? I don't know. It's (laughs) worth noting that a number of LGSM people had come from working Hmm. class communities and even mining communities. Okay, so Hmm. the
1: answer was yes. The answer was yes. Have any of them? Yes. Oh, well, I guess I'll go home then. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. all
0: over <laughs> they weren't a middle class organization mm-hmm. a lot of them had working class backgrounds yep. so I think it was fairly unfair of this letter writer to be like oh the working class doesn't want anything to do with us yeah so yeah a lot of people in the community sort of thought that being queer should be apolitical another letter in capital gay read you will soon have to change the name of your newspaper from capital gay to the red flag if you continue with articles like support the miners (laughs) Um, so that's also a problem which continues to exist today yeah unfortunately true and some were even actively conservative some were even pro Thatcher Gethin Roberts describes the management and clientele of Heaven as older and more affluent than people who went to pubs like the Bell which was mm-hmm. like a like community gay pub oh, a yeah. less commercial gay venue and he was like even though the clientele of Heaven were much wealthier they would get far more donations in from places like the Bell however overall they feel they had a generally positive response people were quite generous i think queer people do tend left even if it's not universal I and mean, i think it's a smart teachers to see like oh hey the government hates these guys too we yeah. have something in common we'll give them some money yeah. yeah the only trouble was they were collecting this money and they didn't know where to send it because they were like we can't deal with the num because of the risk of it being seized so the general practice then instead was for a fundraising organisation to. Have what was called a twinning relationship with a support group, which basically meant you'd have like a specific support group you deal with. It was like yeah. a kind of formalized arrangement. You'd send them money. You'd build relationships with them. And they figured that they would have trouble finding anyone who wanted this kind of a relationship with a gay organization. So for a while, they were just collecting money. Yeah. They didn't know how to get a connection with miners yeah, to give it Yeah, they to were them. collecting money and they were like, we're getting money and we know the miners need this, but we don't know where to send it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then one of the people who attended the original LGSM meeting at Mark's house knew Huil Francis from their activism that they had done together, and they were like, look, I will contact Howell and see what he thinks about this. The support group that Huil ran was conflicted. I'll always remember, says Sean James, who was one of the women involved in it, that the minutes of the meeting were sanitised. <laughs> As all say- minutes are, they... <laughs> I wouldn't say it was nasty. There was nothing like "we don't want that type here," but there were jokes like, "Well, boys, we'll all have to stand with our backs up against the wall." I would categorize that as a pretty nasty thing to say, personally. Yeah, I agree with you, but I can see the distinction she's making where nobody was like "get out," but they were clearly like homophobic and uncomfortable
1: about it. Oh yeah, like yeah. I like I understand what you're saying, but like I also disagree with her.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fair
1: but she said that they
0: also generally had this perception that queer people had been suffering from this kind of negative treatment from the press and the government for much longer than coal miners had and Mm -hmm. that they should feel sort of grateful for the support from somebody who could have just been like, suck it up, we've been through worse. And this is Sean James again. She says, the important thing was that if we were being vilified, if we were being denigrated and the state was calling us the enemy within, what did that say about all these other people who we'd been told for years were also the enemy within? (laughs) Our perception changed dramatically. I quite like that. It's like, wait a second, the government's lying. Have they always been lying? Like, yeah. Yeah, they have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Especially, and you know, perhaps most perniciously about the idea of an enemy within. Yeah. Yeah. You know, governments yeah. are constantly creating enemies within the yeah. state.
0: Sean James is very like astute about this kind of media stuff. Mm-hmm. There's another quote I didn't include in here where she calls the TV that they all have in their houses. She's like, I always said we all had this poison dwarf in the corner of our house <laughs> <laughs> spewing poison. <laughs> 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 I guess especially when you think of those households, which you know, I think our generation doesn't do this, but our parents do, and I assume these kind of people did. Where it's just running in the background all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's just constantly on, and just like, you know, a random news channel is telling you some random stuff that may be absolutely wrong. Yeah, and I can see how she comes at that, and she's like, these people were realising that maybe the enemy within that had been described to them was sometimes wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, anyway... Di met up with some LGSM members at a coffee shop and picked up a check for the money that they'd raised. Mm-hmm. Um, he remembers being surprised at how easy it was to talk to them. He was like, our mindsets were exactly the same. We believed in all the same things. It was great. We were there for like an hour and a half. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. So in mid-September, Dye Donovan invited the group to visit Delice for a weekend. Delice is like the Welsh Valley where all this organizing is going on. This was essentially a standard practice for an organization that was twinning with the Neath, Delice and Swansea Valley's Miners Support Group. Mm -hmm. You would invite them to like visit for a weekend and find out who they were actually supporting. Oh, yeah. They would like take them for a tour of a mine
1: and take them to the pub and some stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a pretty standard, like, charitable support thing.
0: Yeah. Even yeah. now.
1: I mean, now it tends to be more like, hey, heads of this corporation, come look at the work, the charitable work that we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. no, they were
0: like, hey, LJSM, come, as many of you as you like, whatever. Yeah. And I think from a practical perspective, like it does make it much easier to raise funds if you can be like, yeah, I've been to Wales and I've met this guy and this family and they're dealing with this and this rather than just being like, there's some miners with no money, give them some money. Yeah, yeah. And Dai was very strong about the fact that he wanted them to have the same experience and the same welcome in this community as any other group they had worked with before. Good on Die. Dai seems like a great guy. Later on, somebody in another interview is like, when LJSM came, they're like, some people did ask dumb questions, like, you know, so in a gay relationship, which one's the man and which one's the woman? And Dai, like the next comment in the interview is he's like, if I'd heard someone say that, I would have fucking clipped them around the ear." <laughs> Dai knows what he's about. <laughs> yeah, die is great. I love Dai. <laughs> Like, he's got a little bit of that kind of well-intentioned straight person mindset where he's like, I just don't understand why sexuality is such a big deal. (laughs) But also, he's very like, he's like, I don't get it, but if this is important, I'll fucking punch someone for you about it. (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, Um, So... This invitation was very nerve-wracking for the LGSM members, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you can imagine. Some of them didn't go. Nicola Field, one of the women involved, says, I never went to Delice. The reason is that I was still very much affected by the rejection by my family. I was very scared of being abused and needed to be in familiar surroundings. I was scared of being among straight people who might reject
1: me. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, particularly, like, I feel like a pretty common backstory for want of be a better word, for queer people in big cities is that they've come from more rural, isolated yeah. cities. Mm. And so, you know, and the if- idea of going back there, as she said, like, you know, she's still dealing with the trauma of her upbringing.
0: Yeah. And she's like, she doesn't want to go back there and sort of see the same thing in a
1: different place. You can kind of acknowledge that probably it would be fine and even then it's still that might not be fine for you
0: yeah and i'm assuming that that's how she approaches it because in no way does this like reduce her involvement in the organization she's just like i'm too scared to go there but i'll keep working for it yeah dave lewis another ljsm member who did go to the valley was similarly afraid of the tight-knit mining communities he had grown up in the city and he was afraid of going to a place where everyone knew everyone he was also wary that a real life encounter with the miners would destroy his romanticized image. <laughs> Of comradely working class struggle, <laughs> which I think was like a shockingly self-aware thing to think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he sucked it up and just went. Good <laughs> on him. It also caused problems on the miners' end, as you can see by Sean James's testimony before. They were quite sort of. Casually homophobic. One of the things that they would normally do for a visiting support group would be to take them to the miners' welfare hall on a Saturday night, where there was like a bar set up and they'd have a dance. There was a like raised stage for a band. Mm-hmm. This is Sean James again. Says one of the men came out with that classic comment. That'll mean we have to watch men dance together. My response was that we had been watching women dance together for years because that's what happens at clubs in Wales. The women <laughs> dance together while the men stand at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that needed to include like clubs in Wales. I feel like there's you know, <laughs> <that's just laughs> a lot of places where yeah, that's yes. Many people were also afraid of AIDS at this time. A lot of people didn't have a clear sense of what could spread AIDS and who had AIDS. What, mm-hmm. AIDS, was, was. what AIDS was. They were like, it's associated with gay people. It's contagious yeah that's all i know i've seen some horrifying headlines about gay blood plague and so shan james remembers a neighbor threatening to report her to the council if she had gay people in her house as a matter of public health Well. Wow. she was like come on don't be ridiculous <laughs> she's right um shan james is also pretty good she later on is like i want to get into politics and she goes back to uni and then studies for a while and then goes into politics good on her nice. after spending years as like a housewife to a minor <laughs> Good on it. But I guess, you know, a housewife to a miner is a very political yeah, role. Yeah, it's a very story. political role. It is. Um, and she's very political. Like, she does a lot of the organizing for the, like, support, like delivering food parcels oh, to yeah. people and finding out what's needed and getting mm-hmm. it and that kind of thing. But in spite of their sort of general feeling of unease and, you know, latent homophobia, the miners' support group largely felt that it was important to show their appreciation to LGSM for raising money. So they were kind of like – we're uncomfortable with this, but as Howell Francis said, they're making great sacrifices for us. They're raising a lot of money for us. We have to acknowledge the relationship. Mm-hmm. Which is one of those things where I'm kind of like, it on the one hand feels wrong to be like straight people working against their prejudice. Low bar. You should have just done that. But also, I do appreciate that it's quite a hard thing to do. And I feel yeah. like, you know, we say you should have just done that maybe now, but- you know not to be like oh it was just like that back then everyone was homophobic back then but these people were coming from like a more isolated community mm. there would have been just like less exposure to queer people yeah. than there is now and the mainstream murdoch-owned media
1: was very homophobic <laughs> would so- know what that's like <laughs>
0: there's no homophobia now and no coal
1: <laughs> <laughs> and no murdoch-owned media either yeah no. what a no. utopia
0: so on October 26th, 1984, 27 LJSM members in three minibuses headed off from London to the town of Onluen in the Delice Valley. That sounds like a fun time. Oh. Just like, you know, the road trip part. I don't yeah. know what happens when they get there <laughs> They have a great time. They, like, describe leaning out the windows and blowing kisses to passers-by. Yeah. Um, at one point, they get pulled over by the police, and they're all like, oh, no, we're not going to be allowed to go. But it turns out the policeman's dad is a minor, and he's like, oh, I've heard of you guys, on you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> oh, that's delightful. That's all right. It was a relatively remote area to get to. The first thing they did in Wales was get completely lost. They missed the turn off to Delice and they spent like several hours driving around Lost until they finally made it to Onluin at one in the morning. Oh no. (laughs) And (laughs) I guess without mobile phones, like the people in the town are probably just like, are they coming? Have they decided not to come? Yeah. yeah, Like, do we stay up? (laughs) they, They rocked up. By the time they rocked up, everyone had gone to bed except Dai was there waiting for them. And he was like, look, everyone's asleep but you can sleep in my lounge room. So all 27 of them <laughs> squished up in the lounge room and went to sleep. Good on Di. <laughs> Does Di have like a family? I was- has a family. He's got two kids. He's got two sheepdogs. <laughs> he had this like old cottage and he was like, it had these two front rooms and the, the middle wall had been knocked down. Oh, okay. So, so he had like a very big front room and he was like, I guess you can just all sleep there. Yep and he was like and then the dogs came down in the morning and walked all over them
1: (laughs) I have a very important question for you Irene Mm? do you know the name of the dogs no I don't I'm sorry I'm disappointed in you
0: (sighs) I just know that he had two sheepdogs and that the sheepdogs were extremely excited in the morning (laughs) (laughs) 27 new friends yeah (sighs) oh But after they got there and they slept that first night on Dai's lounge room floor, he'd organised homestays for all of them. And so he put like a couple of them up with various families in the village. There were huge cultural differences between the locals and the visitors. I think it's very easy for us to forget from Australia that Hmm. like England
1: and Wales are not the same country, especially in very remote areas. Oh, even like I've been to Cardiff. um, Yeah. Like it does feel very distinctly different to being in London. Like I would say it was... At the very least comparable to going from, like, Melbourne to Wellington, if not a wider difference.
0: Yeah. So even just on a superficial level, like, the clothing they wore was radically different. I mean, I guess, like, these are also, like, young radical leftists. Like, they're going to dress in a certain way. (laughs) Yeah, like, they're the most (laughs) radical of, like, London fashions. And this is like a fairly isolated community. Ray talked about one of them. He was like, I had a friend who had like a red mohawk. I was like, you're going to like tone that down for when we go to Delice? And he was like, nah. And they had these whole discussions about like, to what extent they should tone that stuff down. Would it be okay if you're a vegetarian, but your homestay can only offer meat? Do you eat the meat? And all that kind of thing. Christine Powell who was one of the women of one of the mining families, did say, she was like, they told me they were vegetarian. And I thought, you may be gay. And I'm fine with that. But what the heck do I do with a vegetarian? (laughs) Well, I guess like you're gay. That's like an intellectual thing you have to work with. But you're a vegetarian. It's like a very practical, I have to give you dinner. What will that be? Yeah. And especially (laughs) because they'd been on strike for like months at this point, she was like, we were literally living off like tinned corned beef and potatoes. Yeah. And like, just have the potatoes. (laughs) Yeah. And she was like, eventually I
1: was like, do you eat eggs? And chips? Hell yeah. I
0: and they were like, and yes, and she was like, thank God.
1: <laughs> so I'm just picturing now like like a HSP, but it's just an egg cracked over some chips.
0: Like, <laughs> like fried egg and chips. I need that. I'm
1: assuming they have tomato sauce in Wales. <laughs> They've got HP sauce. I don't know if they have HP sauce in Wales. I assume so. I'm just I just know that they have it in the UK. Yeah. What does the HP stand for? This is not important. I don't Pimes, know. Heinz pickles. <laughs> oh, God Although the locals were very
0: curious, at first they kept their conversation mostly to safe topics, as Christine Powell says, I mean, you weren't going to ask somebody, what's it like to be gay then? You wouldn't expect to be asked, what's it like to be straight, would you? Like with any other group that had come down, we talked about the strike and we slagged off Thatcher. Seems solid, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> They did eventually get comfortable enough with each other to start asking sort of more personal questions. Mm -hmm. Largely, the LJSM members sort of portray it as like innocent curiosity. They're like, Mm -hmm. there were some things that they were like, we wouldn't have been comfortable if someone had asked this in London, but we could tell that it was just coming from a place of like complete like curiosity and unknowing rather than malice. Yeah. Someone did get asked... How a gay relationship works. Like, who does the housework? Who's the wife? Who's the husband? Hopefully, they are introduced to someone, you know, the idea of equally split housework, and they were like, oh, I should tell my husband about that one. So, by all accounts, the weekend generally went well Paul Francis credits this to essentially the work of the local women he was like none of the men were comfortable enough or (laughs) had the social skills to kind of make these interactions work he was like the real relationship was between the gays and the women of these valleys and he talks about how the women kind of went out of their way to make sure that all the gays had a drink and someone to talk to at any time at the pub or whatever good on them Um, I mean you can say that like that like quote you had from Christine before like she was very switched on and very like deliberately trying kind of make it easy for them, like being like, I wouldn't ask them this because I wouldn't want to be asked this. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And you can see Sean James is kind of the same. Yeah, like, She's like very aware of like sort of the problems that they might face. Yeah, yeah. Um, it,
1: it also sounded like from what you were saying before, at least with the example you brought up, I can't remember the person saying, mm-hmm. but how women were generally very involved in the organization side of the strikes, like, you know, distributing things and, you know, actually making it logistically work. So it's not surprising to me that then when these people come to visit, probably it was generally the case that the women were talking more with the visitors than Mm. the men who work in the mines themselves just obviously exacerbated
0: in this case by the men feeling kind of threatened Mm. yeah like sexuality way yeah what did actually surprise me was that the like men leaders of the group were so aware of this like Howell francis mm-hmm. talks about how he was like i knew that i had to relinquish certain things to the women and he was like this wasn't like a gender roles thing or anything like that it was just that they had like knowledge about communities and things like that that i just didn't have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he talks about like giving them money to buy food parcels and things like that. And they had these ongoing arguments where the men would be like, what do you need? Oh, we need like tea and sugar and tins of baked beans. <laughs> Cause that was like the things that they would get for themselves around the kitchen and the women oh, would be yeah. like, all right, we need, we need meat and talk. potatoes. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, but yeah. I thought the, the men were generally quite aware of the kind of work that the women were doing mm-hmm. and the kind of areas where their own knowledge was lacking. Mm -hmm. In a way that I didn't expect, because my experience of that kind of thing is that men I speak to think that they know. Yeah. They're like, I know what the housework is. Mm. Yeah. And then you ask their partner and she's like... He thinks he does, sweetie. <laughs> but I guess because these communities had been going through these strikes and these processes of having to support each other and get out food parcels and find out the needs of different families, they've probably done this work over the years that that's yeah, been Yeah, that's true. I guess 10 years ago, did Earl Francis know what his wife was doing behind the scenes? Maybe not. No, but he's had to learn when she's had to organise the entire community in this way. Yeah.
1: Well, and also, you know, you mentioned earlier how a lot of the women would then go and work yeah, during strike time, so presumably the men had to pick up at least a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, um, and
0: they became aware of what housework involves. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So on the Sunday of the weekend, Di Donovan arranged for the visitors to go down a coal mine and see what it was like. Brett Harren remembers being profoundly affected by this. I hadn't had any romantic notions about what coal mining was like. I knew it was a grimy, gritty, unpleasant job, but when we walked into it, my reaction was, "God, people actually work in these conditions." hmm He's not really clear about, like, what about it was this, whether it was just being down there in the dirt and the dark, and he was like, ooh,
1: yeah. Fair enough. I imagine I would have a pretty similar reaction, to be honest. Yeah. yeah.
0: Generally, the members of LGSM agree that they came away with a sense of increased respect for the miners and the mining community, as well as a changed view of what the working class was like.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In return, after the visit to Delice, LGSM organized for the miners' families to come and stay with them in London. Was that also, like, a common practice with these, like, twin groups? I don't know. Or whether they just made a particular connection. So... Yeah, they organized for the miners' families to come and stay with them and they were like, Well, you gave us a taste of your life. Let's have an experience of the gay community in <laughs> London. And they literally like take them to heaven, they take them night <laughs> they take them to gay pubs. So when you say the miners' families, obviously if you're like, you know, a couple with young children, like, did the kids come? What did the kids I kid- don't know about the young kids, but there's definitely like miners, miners' wives. Jane Frances Hedden, who you'll hear about a little bit soon, is like a teenager. She's like sixteen oh, yeah. or seventeen. And- And she comes up and they like take her clubbing. Oh, yeah, that's cool. And she's like, I was having a great time. The gay men were so nice and unthreatening. And then she's like, I went into the women's toilets and there were two women just having sex in there. I was 16. I came from a sheltered town. I ran out. (laughs) (laughs) Jane Frances Hedden does say that while she found it very easy to connect with the gay men and she felt quite safe and comfortable around them, she found connecting with lesbians a little bit more difficult. So they organized some, like, women's days Mm-hmm. That were like the lesbians and the women of the mining families. And they would get together and, you know, do some like craft activities and have lunch and oh, yeah. talk about women's issues and that kind of thing. Sounds um, nice. But Jane says she remembers a sense of anger and negativity in the women's groups that frightened her. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand at the time why they were all so cross all the time. I never got that sense of anger from the gay men. So I didn't understand it or see why it was necessary. I want to be clear here that she is speaking in hindsight. Mm-hmm. When she says, I didn't understand it, she understands yep. now. And much later, Jane will come out as a lesbian. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I guess, like, at the time she's a teen and she hasn't been exposed to, like, feminism that much. Yeah. Whether it's lesbian feminism or not. Yeah. And they yeah. do also say they took a lot of the, like, ideas and the running of those lesbian women groups back to South Wales to have... Mm-hmm sort of women's groups of their own and they would have like a cooperative childcare thing happening in the corner so they could get a bit of a break. Both groups visit each other several times Mm -hmm. um, and become increasingly comfortable with each other. The gay men start being comfortable telling the minors things like their experiences and feelings around AIDS, which mattered particularly to one man we have interviewed a lot, Jonathan Blake who was diagnosed as HIV positive, like, very early in the founding of LGSM, which at the time was, as you can imagine, like, the most terrifying thing to happen Mm. because there were no known effective treatments. And that sort of familiarity and comfort around those issues does come back later on. Later on throughout the course of the 80s, as the AIDS crisis gets more and more intense, several very homophobic laws were passed. One allowed hospitals to, like, forcibly detain AIDS patients, Wow. Um, is that the idea that otherwise they just go out and sleep with people and spread I guess AIDS? I so. Another was Section 28, which infamously oh, yes. forbade the promotion of homosexuality. The campaign around that is where that quote from Margaret Thatcher I gave you earlier about the inalienable right to be gay comes from. Mm-hmm. And during the like anti-Section 28 campaign yep. and AIDS activism, like groups of minors were one of the major supporters of the queer community at this time. Nice. By the last weeks of February 1985, it becomes clear that the miners aren't going to be able to hold out much longer. They started striking in March of the previous year. It's been 11 months. They've had little support from other unions, mm-hmm. other than the miners' union, because everyone is afraid of the anti-union laws that Thatcher has put in, yeah. um, amongst other things like secondary picketing was banned and like solidarity strikes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, as well as the whole asset-seizing law. And public attention is only so long for this kind mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. yeah on the final friday in february lgsm traveled down to delice to spend one last weekend with the mining community and sean james says lgsm were with us that weekend and that was very important we all sat in here in my house with my parents they had got to know all our parents as well and the atmosphere was dreadful we watched the news on tv and found the decision had been made to go back i remember sitting there and shouting at the television and my mother saying to me you don't want this strike to end do you Inside, I didn't want it to end, because I was afraid that if the strike ended, life would go back to what it was before, a very traditional life, and all the friends we'd made would disappear. On March the 4th, so like the following week, the striking miners returned to the pits. Throughout the 11 months of the strike, LGSM had raised somewhere around £22,500. It's a lot of money, especially uh, then. For the mining families of that one community in South Wales. It got to the point where the Neath, DeLays & Swansea support group was like handing out $5,000 to other nearby (laughs) communities. i love that like where did you get this money we've just got like, these really great gays in london they just keep breathing <laughs> yeah, <down. laughs> yeah they would we should like... get some gays in london they'd done everything from collecting on the street to jumble sales to benefit concerts with like queer bands at stuff like that that's so good i'm going to wrap up with just a couple of quotes the first is from jane Frances hedden who as i mentioned later came out as a lesbian And she says, I'm a lesbian now and married to a woman. And maybe that was inside me all that time. I never sat down and really thought about it. But I asked myself, did that time in 1984 and 85 with LJSM give me the chance to one day be who I wanted to be? I don't know for sure, but I think it did. (laughs) Which was very endearing. Yeah. And on the other hand, I have a quote from Mike Johnson, which says, they taught me the meaning of the word comradeship. I'd worked previously with lesbian and gay activists, and of course there was a sense of common cause with them, but that was nothing compared to the comradeship I got from working within the traditional communities in South Wales. We learned a lot from them. I just wanted to make clear with those last two quotes that it wasn't a case of these gays went into this isolated community and opened their minds to the world. Mm, It was like there was a sort of two-way learning exchange there in terms of like how to organize and what solidarity can look like. Yeah, and like Mm. you can see from their experiences, like the solidarity wasn't just like, We go on strike when you go on strike, or we send you some money. Like, they were in their homes, like,
1: talking to them, like... being introduced to their parents, you know. Yeah,
0: Yeah, like, they really kind of became part of each other's families. And a last little coda. Following the release of the Pride movie in 2014, the original LGSM reformed, they now raise money for a trust in Mark Ashton's name, which supports people living with HIV and AIDS. Oh, that's good. Mark Ashton died of AIDS-related causes in the late 80s. There are a number of successor groups which do work closer to the original work of Lesbians and Gays Support the Minors, working under the Lesbians and Gays acronym, kind of. There's a group in Norway called Lesbians and Gays Support the Doc Workers.
1: Oh, cool.
0: There's also a UK group called Lesbians and Gays Support the Migrants. And in the words of Martin Goodsell, these kinds of groups, he says, are carrying on in our tradition, and that is our legacy. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm still Irene. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. If you enjoyed that episode, firstly, you'll be excited to know that there's some bonus related content coming out next week. So we'll be bringing out a Queer as Fiction episode about the 2014 Pride movie, which is based on the events that I described to you in this episode. And that is coming out on the 8th of July. Secondly, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. You can listen to them there. You can find us on social media on Tumblr, Facebook, and Twitter as, Queer as Fact, or you can contact us directly by email at QueerAsFact at gmail.com. If you want to support us financially, you can sign up to our Patreon. That will get you the newsletter in which we give you inaccurate information about what might be coming <laughs> <laughs> <We're> <laughs> amongst <out>. other things. <laughs> or you can buy our merch on our Redbubble page, You can find information and links to all of these things, as well as sources for each episode on our website, QueerAsFact.com. Thank you for listening. We will see you very soon.